You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord Jesus, we're very grateful that you have brought us together on this Sunday. Pray that in your mercies and in your kindness, O Lord, that you would open our hearts and our minds to what you would have to teach us from your word and from one another. Lord, I thank you for our guests today. I pray that they'll feel welcome and at home, and I pray that you'll give them freedom to speak as you would lead them. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Come on in. We we got room in here. We even got the expensive seats up front. Um, well, we, we have two guests today, uh, Ted and Ivan. We're, we're going to let them, uh, and David's going to introduce them a little bit more um, in a few minutes, and then they're going to introduce themselves. Um, the, the idea today is for us to have a conversation that David's going to facilitate um, about, uh, again, our, our place in the city, the relationship of our church to the city, and so we're glad to have our guests today to help us sort of navigate some of that. But before we do that... Um, I thought it would be helpful just to frame um, some of the issues that we're thinking about today in terms of this larger category of justice as it pertains to the book of Nehemiah. Now, we have laid this, this sort of seeds of these, this conversation for a few weeks now, but just to recall two episodes in the book of Nehemiah. So think about this massive infrastructural project going on, rebuilding the walls, and in the middle of that, Two issues pertaining to biblical justice arise within the book while um, Nehemiah and the crews are working um, and after the wall itself is built. So if you remember correctly, while the walls are being built, there's a, there's a, a call um, from Nehemiah to those who uh, within the city who are apparently exploiting those who are in positions of vulnerability. That's happening right in the middle of the work of being built. Now, what, what makes this especially an exposed nerve in Israel's history um, is that part of their going into exile, um, part of the judgment that God had brought to them via the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, part of God's judgment against them was leveled because of the necessary interaction and interfa- interface between love of God and love of neighbor. It's as if the prophets are letting us know you cannot have the one without the other. So right in the midst of, the, of God's releasing them from exile, now back in the city, rebuilding the walls, rebuilding the temple, some of the same old patterns are still demonstrating themselves. And, and Nehemiah is, I mean, to, I don't know what other term to use then, aghast. He's, he's completely taken back by what's happening in his midst. And he goes in and he addresses the situation, calling them uh, to repentance. The second thing that happens is after the walls are built and the covenant is being renewed among God's people, part of that renewal is a, is a repetition of the history of Israel, which includes Israel's redemption from the Egyptians in the book of Exodus, all the way through a recounting of the sins of their fathers so that they can, re, so that they can enter into their current moment in recognition of God's grace in their lives and their own propensity to walk away from that grace. So there's this, there's this dynamic of recalling the past in order to enter well into the current moment uh, um, that, that they're, they're residing in now in, in recognition of the human heart. So as we, as we think about this, you know, and I, I so much to say. David told me I had, I had five minutes. Um, so lots to say here. Um, but, but justice in the Bible seems to have both a sort of positive and, and a negative take. Um, the, the positive take is the extension, we might say, 
of the second table of the law. So we love God, and then we love our neighbor. That's, that's how We even use that in our liturgy um, when we confess our faith together and then confess our sins. Love God, love your neighbor. Justice is the extension of that second table of the law. I'm loving your neighbor into, into the public square. It's as one, one author that I read recently said, justice is the love of God gone public. And it's, and it's grounded in a right order and an understanding of, of God as our Father and our neighbor as image bearers of that self-same God. So, so the, the, point, the positive side of this is Christians, Christian theology, a biblical theology, I think has, has a special kind of repository of data and help and instincts to help Christians navigate what this means to love God and our, and our neighbor in ways that aren't necessarily available in the culture at large. So I think that's, that's an important point. Christians have a repository of, of instincts and, and, and ideas to frame this idea of justice because of a confession about God as our Father Almighty and, and our neighbors as, as image bearers. But there's a negative side to this as well. And it's a negative side that's repeated in Israel's history. And I think this is the hard thing. The hard thing is when we read the history of Israel, which is a history of so much covenantal failure, the, the call is for us to take stock of our own hearts in the light of our propensity toward sin. Sin still reigns and can rule in the human heart. This is something that at the Advent we confess without reservation, that we are made righteous in God's sight and we are sinners at the same time. So, so the negative side of this, I think, as we kind of enter into it, is a recognition that if left on autopilot, we all have a tendency to go toward um, certain paths that are, that are outside the scope of God's own justice. We have, and, th- and this is the hard thing, but we have evil that can lurk and reside in our own hearts. Um, so that's the sort of negative side. This is why the prophets come in to remind God's people about who God is and who their neighbor is. It's why when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, like any good Jew would have loved your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then unasked, Jesus says, but the second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's as if Jesus is saying you can't have the one without the other. Loving God and loving your neighbor creates a kind of a vortex that's necessarily received and understood um, together. I want to say this last thing and then I'll turn it over to David. There's a verse in Micah 3.1 that I, I, I think about with some regularity. Um, and it's, it's a charge against the elders and the leaders of God's people, the priests and the political rulers. And, and Micah the prophet says, of all the people you should, and he uses the term, know justice. Something you should know, which is, of course, in the Old Testament, you know, knowledge is not merely a kind of intellectual property. It's also a kind of giving of the heart and the affections to that which is known. There's a reason why in funny sort of King James English, it says, and Adam knew his wife and then she conceived and bare a son. Well, that's, you know, that's that, that whatever that was, it wasn't a mere intellectual knowledge. Um, so this, this kind of call to knowledge is, is a call to to recognize something is true, and then to lean into it and with faith and affection. And here the prophet says, of all the people, you all should know this. So I think the conversation that we're having today, um, and I'm prayerful about this, is, is entering into that dynamic for Micah. A kind of call to know, um, to understand, to open our hearts and minds to hear, and to learn, and to listen 
uh, to those whose experiences might be different than ours and in, 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 in an understanding of a common, a common humanity identity made um, in the image of God. Um, I was going to talk about Hannah Arendt, but we'll avoid that. Um, and I'm, I'm going to hand this over now to, to David. Well, when we embarked on this uh, series to, to really understand our place, um, we did this uh, so that we could really know how our church best helps support uh, the movement of God in in our city, our physical, our spiritual, all all the aspects of flourishing for the city that we're in. Um, and uh, as I mentioned at one point, um, you know, we are a city that developed historically as really almost two cities. Um, and one that was uh, white and one that was black and it was um, a, a city that came to reckon with that and is still reckoning with that reality and so it wasn't fair for me to speak to the perspective of the African-American uh, uh, part of our city and I'm very blessed to have some good friends uh, with uh, Ted Debro and Ivan Holloway and when I thought about the fact that I would really need I really need to bring some people to this um, you know, Ted was the first guy I thought of, and we talked about Ivan coming in, and really these are the right guys to, to, to come have this conversation uh, and, and talk about our city and from a different perspective. You know, what is the perspective of our city, and what, is, what are the views about our city, and, and what's going on from a different vantage point, and uh, so that we know our city better and we know our neighbors. As I've talked about, we live, our church is physically in a neighborhood that is 50% white and 50% black. There are four or five white, historically white churches. There are three to four, I think, historically black churches. It just so happens that both of these men, who I would have called anyway, are at 16th Street Baptist Church. Um, you could have been in another church, you know, but, I, but these are the guys that I, I'd love to talk to about this. So, Ted, tell us a little okay. bit about who you are. You are not from Birmingham. Where are you from? How'd you get here? And what did, what, what are you, where are you retired from? Thank, thank you, David. Um, and good morning to everybody. First of all, I, I really feel as though I'm at a loss because I, I have not participated with you in your earlier conversations and in your earlier knowledge about Nehemiah. Uh, I, I have read uh, some of Nehemiah now since uh, David called me uh, to try to get some type of perspective to make sure that I can cover what you have learned uh, in the last few weeks but uh, know that I did not have that experience, so I don't have all of the words that you may have gotten from the expert uh, in your conversations over the last few weeks. I'm not an expert, really, in being an African-American, about African-Americans, and I'm not the sole voice. I'm not the primary voice. I'm just a voice, because I have had the African-American experience here in America. I'm a boy from Tupelo, Mississippi. I'm just one year shy of Emmett Till. The summer that Emmett Till was killed, my parents guarded, protected, shielded me more than I ever really knew or thought of. I, I didn't really understand. 
they shielded me from the story of Emmett Till. I picked up Reader's Digest and read the story and learned that Emmett Till could have been me. I learned that Emmett Till was just one year older than me. He was just a few miles down the road from Tupelo, Mississippi. My parents loved me. My parents cared for me. My parents protected me. And I say that because I think that's all of our lives in America, that whether we are white, whether we are black, whether we are red, whether we are yellow, whatever we are, our parents try to protect us, they love us, they teach us, and they guide us into this life. I, I, and, and I didn't really recall this until I started doing tours at, at 16th Street, but I, I remember as a, a little boy how I used to go to the downtown area uh, with my mother. And I, I didn't understand how when we would uh, approach certain people, and it happened to be uh, a white female, she would always gracefully kind of move over to protect me from being close to that white female. And then after the white female would pass, she would gracefully you know, come back on the other side and we would continue to walk. It was something that I didn't understand, but she was loving me, she was protecting me, she was guiding me. And she was taking me out of a position that I could ever be accused of what Emmett Till was accused of in his 14-year-old <coughs> innocence. After uh, that summer of, uh, of uh, Emmett Till's killing, uh, my parents made sure that they arranged for me to get out of Mississippi every summer. So by the time I graduated from high school, I had been to probably about 32 of the 48 states during that time because they, they made sure that I traveled, that I went to other places, that I learned different experiences. And I said I grew up as a boy in Mississippi because the next thing they did was they made sure that I went to Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia. There was Dr. Benjamin E. Mays whose philosophy was that he needed to take the black boys from the South and make them men, and thus the sign of Morehouse man. He said that you are more than a boy from Mississippi. You are more than a boy from the South. You have to provide the leadership for this entire nation, and thus, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. I, I know I'm, I, I may be going along a little too long, but I'll, let me, I just, I'm going to bring all of it around to where, where we need to be. Going to Morehouse, I used to pass through Birmingham. Uh, at that time, it was on the bus. Uh, and it was during the time of the Civil Rights Movement, and 
Birmingham was really fearful. I remember coming through, I guess now I know it was the Fairfield area, coming on 0708, and how it was just so cloudy and dirty and dingy with all of the smoke from the steel sites. And then we came into Birmingham to the segregated bus station. Uh, I was too afraid to really get off the bus at, at that point, even though they were cleaning it, I would just try to hide uh, in a seat while they were cleaning it. But once they did that, we would move on to Atlanta. And then all of a sudden, on Crestwood Boulevard, at that time, it was like Hollywood with the manicured lawns, the rent-styled houses. And I saw the difference in what was the west side of Birmingham, the cloudy, the dingy, the dirty, and then the east side of Birmingham, which was like Hollywood. I said at that time, I never want to come to Birmingham. I never want to live in Birmingham. But God always has another answer for you. And I did end up in, in Birmingham. But I think it was in, uh, and I don't know the year, uh, you can uh, check your history and find out what the year is, but once um, Dr. Arrington was elected mayor of Birmingham, he appeared on the Today Show with the police chief, I believe, and he was married to a black woman. He was a white man married to a black, black woman, mm -hmm. maybe he wasn't police chief, but I guess I was so impressed by his vision and his outlook on Birmingham. And then there you had a mixed couple there that, that kind of lived that vision and lived that life that I had to reconsider Birmingham. I've been here now for about 40 years and I tell you there's no place on this earth I would rather be than Birmingham, Alabama. I think we have a future. I think we are the magic city. I think as we get into this discussion, I want to talk about some of that vision. Uh, but I wanted to share with you that I'm just a simple little boy from Mississippi. Not unlike you, I was raised by good and caring parents. And more than anything, I'm a human, and I'm a Christian. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. Especially thank you for um, labeling my neighborhood Crestwood Hollywood. That's yeah. going to raise property <laughs> <laughs> Look, Thank you. Um, Ivan, uh, you are from Birmingham. You grew up here. Tell us a little bit about who you are and, and what you do. And then why don't you go ahead and segue into what would be the next sort of question, which is what does Birmingham mean to you? Very good. Thank you so much. Thank you all for having us today. Thank you, David, for inviting me. Um, you know, Ted has kids that are just a little bit younger than You're I am. Okay, my age. <laughs> um, and, and I am no spring chicken, by the way. Uh, but uh, his perspective is uh, a little bit different from my perspective. But I will tell you that much of what he described uh, lingered on to me and my family. So again, my name is Ivan Holloway, grew up here in Birmingham in a little place called East Thomas, which is a neighborhood in the Smithfield community, right outside of uh, the area where Birmingham Southern College is. 
Uh, and so uh, mom and dad, um, we uh, lived uh, in an area where it's now uh, I-5920. So we moved when the interstate was being developed and we moved about four blocks north of where we were uh, during that time period. And, and as Ted sort of described, things were a, a lot different during that time period. So uh, there were very few places we could look for housing, but uh, we did manage to find something uh, new in the Smithfield community. So we built from the ground up, uh, my mom and dad, and I have four siblings uh, who all went off to school. So that was an expectation that uh, we receive uh, a college education. But my family joined 16th Street Baptist Church back in the uh, 1920s. So we've been associated with the 16th Street Baptist Church and being in the downtown community uh, for, quite, uh, for quite some time. Uh, I was born in the 60s, and so um, being born at that period of time, uh, Birmingham was changing but had not yet changed uh, completely. And so what Ted described as uh, his uh, parents, his mother protecting him, was the exact same thing that I experienced. We used to come downtown on a regular basis. Uh, we uh, were tax-paying citizens, so my mom wanted to make sure that uh, we partook in everything that we possibly could uh, as a citizen of Birmingham. My dad died when I was five years old, so uh, it began to change in terms of how we were able to maneuver through life uh, as, a, as a family. Um, so, being from Birmingham and wanting to be a part of everything that Birmingham stood for, uh, the big iron statue uh, on the south side, uh, Volca, meant a great deal to me because that was um, an icon for Birmingham, uh, the god of forge. Uh, and uh, growing up and looking up at the statue of Vulcan uh, helped me to understand that, you know what, you can achieve anything that you want to achieve uh, if you put your mind to it. So uh, we were nurtured in an environment in 16th Street Baptist Church with all types of uh, programs and all types of ministries that allowed us to see beyond where we were at that particular time. So uh, for me, it became a lifelong, uh, I would say, dream, David, to be a part of the downtown community outside of just going to church. And as fate would have it, uh, I now run a nonprofit that focuses in and around the 16th Street Baptist Church area called the Civil Rights District. And so we are, uh, my family and I are really excited to be a part of uh, that conversation around rebuilding the walls, if you will, uh, and reestablishing uh, community in the downtown uh, Birmingham area. So that's a little bit about me. Again, I have uh, four siblings and uh, we all are um, older now and we have a different perspective on things, uh, but we're excited to be a part of the Birmingham community. So your, your question, David, was... What does Birmingham mean to you? So um, 
Birmingham to me is a uh, place of hope. Uh, it is a place of inspiration. Uh, and I say that because I, I, I look out here today and uh, you all have me here speaking to you. Uh, that's inspirational. That is hope. Uh, that is who I believe Birmingham actually is. And I think that uh, Birmingham has always been, for me, uh, even when uh, we were being guided through uh, downtown in a protected kind of way, uh, it was always seen uh, as that place. Ted mentioned um, uh, Richard Arrington being elected as uh, mayor. That was, yeah, a, a, a pivotal point, but at the same time, um, it was not so pivotal because uh, the racial makeup of Birmingham had changed. So ideally, you would have an African-American mayor if you have mostly African-American residents who live here. Uh, I think that as uh, David described, the downtown community now is roughly about 50% white and about 50% black. Ideally, that's the place we want to be in our society where we can all understand one another and uh, make progress together. So for me, uh, Birmingham is this exciting place where uh, we are, uh, I would say, a, um, an experiment uh, where we can all find out how we get to the justice that you spoke of uh, in every aspect of our lives. So uh, I don't know if that's what you want to hear, David, but that's what Whatever I got. Whatever you want to say. Ted, <laughs> <laughs> um, do you want to share any thoughts on that, too, what Birmingham means to you or, or generally to African Americans? Well, I, I think Birmingham, um, what, what it means to me, it, it's home. And I, and I think that's the definition for so many of us, and maybe all of us, that it's home. And where in my house, I don't have everything straight. Uh, it gets messed up sometimes. I have difficulties with my children from time to time. But I have to work through all of that to bring home back together again. And so I think um, for Birmingham, because it's home, there are some difficulties. There have been some hard and, and strained times. We even had some last year and year before last. But we have to work through that. We got to work through that together to bring home back to us where we are all comfortable with it, where we are all pleased with it, and that we are all living what Christ taught us how to live. Uh, I, I, I loved what your pastor said this morning. I just got to quote it because I loved it. Uh, he said that Jesus has the power to operate where no one else can. Just how powerful is that? Jesus has the power to operate where no one else can. You know, and, and that's what I believe that we do as Christians, that we can operate and really change things. But we got to understand what the change is, what, the, what is needed to be changed in, in, our, in our homes when it's our children, when it's uh, our uh, messed up kitchen or whatever. We have to understand what it is that's wrong before we can change it. But once we understand it, we can change it and we can make a difference. So for me, Birmingham is home. There are a lot of difficulties. 
there are a lot of strange things, there are a lot of uh, things that need to be corrected. But I think people of faith can change that. And I, I think that's why I'm, I'm so happy that you're invited me this morning, because that's, that's the message that I, I see um, that Nehemiah had, you know, and, and he was a cupbearer, you know, and, 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 and I love that story where he was a cupbearer and he had to taste the wine before the king and all this and another, but eventually he got to the point that he had to speak up and ask the king for a favor. Mm-hmm. We as Christians have to reach the point that we have to speak up. First of all, speak to God and Nehemiah prayed then he spoke to the king and then he changed the community he changed the world and i think that's what we need to do and that's what i some of the lessons i got out of nehemiah in reading it yeah yeah i uh i want to i guess go further in that direction as christians as fellow believers we're all believers here and Y'all are in a church just around the corner, and, and, and you're not here to speak on behalf of that church specifically, just as, as individuals there. But, you know, for we're both downtown churches. We're, our, we worship in our downtown locations. And, and what do you think it means to have kind of a heart for the city and, and to try to impact that in today's world? Um, uh, what, what should and could bodies of faith, especially ones right in the middle of the city that represent so much, how, how can we see the city and engage with the city and, and what does the city need from your perspective? You want to go first? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I think that um, churches are filled with um, so many people that have uh, so many ideas, so many resources. Um, they are filled with inspirational people that I believe should put that inspiration to good use for issues that uh, we find ourselves uh, detached from often uh, to uh, change our communities. Uh, being a, and, and I will tell you, um, many of the members of 16th Street uh, don't physically live in and around uh, where the church is, so they commute in, uh, so they face uh, thoughts around uh, inner city issues like anybody else, David. Uh, and so, but what we're constantly trying to figure out is how best to utilize uh, the skill set that God has blessed them with, the gifts that uh, they are blessed with, to really impact the community in and around uh, the area. So I, I'm always uh, excited uh, to be a part of a church that is in fact uh, downtown because the conversations that we have about city are different from the conversations that a lot of people have when uh, they're in churches that are um, not of the downtown area. Uh, and um, uh, we deal with issues around homelessness. We deal with issues around mental health. Uh, we deal with issues around substance abuse, whereas some churches don't have to deal with that in an open kind of fashion. And I think that uh, 
knowing that these things are going on around us uh, is something that uh, we should all have compassion and bring whatever experience and gifts that we have uh, to the community to help uh, alleviate the burden of government, the burden of hospitals, the burden of other institutions that find themselves on the front lines often, but because we have this resource of heart and caring and love and compassion, um, I, I think is something that downtown churches uh, should be uh, engaged in on a regular routine basis. And also, um, as we've talked about here, and you know because you're in this work and I'm in it, we work together on a lot of things, the downtown community is changing so much more that it's not just a community of those elements that you spoke of. It's their higher income people moving in. A absolutely. And, and you spoke to wanting to rebuild that neighborhood. Absolutely. There and how should churches see that kind of thing going on in a place like this? So I would say uh, churches should be very, very excited about that. Uh, that's number one. I think that as we uh, rebuild the walls and rebuild you know, community, uh, it gives uh, an opportunity for a different and fresh perspective around what it means to be in downtown. Uh, but what it also means is new opportunities for uh, ministry, new opportunities for um, what I talked about earlier, that cohesion of community uh, between different um, demographics, black, white, young, old, uh, etc., and really push the limits of what God is calling us all to is home and family, as, as Ted described. You want to speak to that? Uh, Abigail, and, and you may want to run me out of here once I get through. Uh, and, and I see another one of my churchmen was in the back, uh, Armand Bragg, and he may uh, uh, have me put out a church plan, but I'm, I'm going to say it. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm old enough now to say whatever I want to say. <laughs> um, I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> Martin Luther King said that the most segregated time in the world is at 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings. And whether it was true back in, in, six, in the 60s, it's also true today. I don't think that we as, uh, as Christians, we as uh, faith believers, really have lived up to our Christian heritage and mission and what Jesus Christ has asked us to do when he says, love ye one another. And when, I, when he says love you one another, he's not talking about love your white brother, uh, love your black brother. He love you one another. I'm, I'm human. I'm just like you. I want you to love me. I want to love you. And I think until the churches uh, really can open their doors to any and everybody, and intentionally move to incorporate any and everybody where you learn me and I learn you, that we will not be living the word of God. So uh, where, what, what, what do I see for the downtown area and for the people of, of faith? I see that we have to intentionally work to come together. I don't need 16th Street 
five blocks down the street that never knows what the Church of the Advent is doing. I don't need 16th Street five blocks down the street not knowing what you're doing and you not knowing what we are doing. I don't need you to see us just as a civil rights church that was bombed. I need you to see us as human beings. I need you to see us as Christians. I need you to see us as a loving community that's ready and open to welcome you as a loving community. And how we do that, I'm not quite sure, but I know we don't do that by just coming on Sunday morning segregated, hearing a sermon, going back home, being comfortable in our homes again, going to our work during the week, come back again next Sunday, go back home again doing the same thing, and never reaching out to try to pull all of God's children together. When, when uh, one of the questions, and, and, and probably um, uh, that, that David probably asked me, was uh, to speak from the African-American perspective. And I, I said that I, at first I said, well, I really can't do that, but I, I am an African-American, I can speak as Ted Deborah. I think what has happened in my community and possibly in your perception of my community is that there are people who speak for the community. And those people do not speak for the community. They are not the voice that you really need to hear. A lot of times the, the uh, people that you're hearing are people who are, uh, I, I would say, the coin changers in the temple, the, the uh, ones that are just trying to make money. But they are not hearing the true faith believers. They are not, you're not hearing the true inside of a lot of the churches that are just like you. So I'm, I, what I see for our churches and what, what we need to do is to open up to one another. Open up to each other. Live what Christ said. Love ye one another. And you know, it, it, it's a simple message. We try to complicate it in a lot of ways, but if we just look at it as one simple message, love ye one another, what a wonderful world this would be. Because love for me is that it, it, it's really giving of myself to another. And as I empty myself to another, and that person then gives back to me, then I'm complete again. I'm whole again, and we are one. And I think that's what Christ's message is. Uh, if David will allow me to do this. Uh, in our church, uh, there's a Wells window that was really uh, sent to us as a memorial about the bombing uh, that came after the bombing. And I hope all of you will come and just see that window at some, at some point. It's just a powerful window. It, it, it's a picture of a, of a black Christ, a black man, but one who looks like Christ. He's very much black. He has heavy eyelids, big lips, nappy hair, dog skin. He's a black man. He's not one of the pictures where you had really a, a white man and then you just painted him black. This is a black man. And his head is bowed. 
But one hand is holding up the world and one is reaching out to the world. There's a rainbow over his head that says peace and it's, it's a symbol, symbolic of when God told Noah, if you will be my people, I will be your God. There are bullets going straight through Christ's heart and there's an arrow pointed directly at his heart and it's based on the scriptures, when you do it to the least of these, you do it unto me. So inscribed on the bottom of that window is, you do it unto me. The blueness of the window is significant because in our Baptist tradition, we baptize you up under the water to purify you, to make you whole again. So that blueness of the water is a cleansing effect. There's a circle that goes all the way around Christ that shows us that if we are unified as a people, we can do just about anything. And that's what I'm, I'm saying to you, that if we are unified in a cause, we can change this world, we can change downtown. And then there's a, there's a cross that's right in the center that's almost like a Greek cross that forms a plus sign. And that says to me that we have to be a plus in life. We can't just be human beings. If we're going to be Christians, we have to go the second mile. We have to turn the other cheek. We have to give our coat as well as our cloak because we are Christians. We are different. We have to move out. We have to do more. And then uh, if you would look closely at that wonder too, you'll see the water pellets that were shot from the water hoses on children as they were protesting and as they were trying to change things here in Birmingham. Just a beautiful reminder and a sermon to all of us that we have a commitment to God. You know, it's easy to say that I'm a Christian, but it's hard to be a Christian because you have to sacrifice. You have to step out. You have to go that second mile. So in order for uh, things really to change, I think in Birmingham, in order for the churches to change, I think the churches got to step out. You got to make some deliberate steps to be inclusive, not just by word, not by just discussion, but some systematic steps to make sure that we are open and 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is not the most segregated time in America. I feel like we should keep talking. Fortunately, we're out of time, but I know we could keep going for another couple of hours, I think. But, I, I have to say one other thing, and I know I talk too much. But uh, a, a new book is, is uh, being reprinted, and, and many of you may know Charles Morgan. Uh, he was a young uh, lawyer here. In, in Birmingham uh, who appeared before the young, I think, business uh, group the day or the week after the bombing of the church. And he spoke up to that group and said that we are all guilty for the bombing. Whether it's because we didn't say anything, whether we said something, we are all guilty. Charles was uh, ostracized and really he had to leave um, 
uh, Birmingham. Um, he was a, a promising person. They, they really had talked about him running for the Senate and other places, but uh, he had to leave, uh, leave Birmingham. Uh, uh, the Alabama Press uh, is releasing this in, in January. I just got a, a first copy. Uh, and uh, I really would like for you to read it and maybe use it as a study uh, guide as, uh, for, for this session. It's called A Time to Speak. And he talks about that day when he stood up before this uh, August body of aristocrats in Birmingham and he spoke out and what it meant for him at that time and what it meant for him at his life. And there's a challenge in here for us. The foreword is really by, written by uh, Senator Doug Jones, uh, which is excellent, uh, but I want to recommend that book. Okay. Well, um, I hate to have to bring this to a close, but um, thank you so much for coming. I think hopefully there's a lot more we can be talking about over time. Maybe this is just the beginning of that. Um, but uh, I, uh, let me close us in prayer, and then you can, you can hang around, and maybe some folks will want to come meet you and talk to you. So. Dear Lord, there is so much um, justice uh, that uh, you have to, to lead us into, and uh, so much in this community coming together that is only possible uh, because of Jesus. And uh, Lord, I pray that we would lean into Jesus uh, for that. And that um, all of us, no matter what the hue of our skin is, can begin to see, yeah, we're going to have differences and we're going to have different ways of looking at the world. We're going to have different uh, institutions and things that we treasure. But uh, there is one city here that we all endeavor to be a part of and to, to build into a better place. And Lord, I, I pray for what those things are you want us to do together. And and conversations to continue. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.